0: You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode. I appreciate each and every one of you who listened to our first episode and all of you who responded with feedback and kind words and ratings and reviews. It all really means a lot and I appreciate you taking the time to listen and respond. If you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode, I highly recommend you check it out. Alright, let me tell you a little bit about this week's conversation, which features Mike Laramie, a special education teacher at a charter school in Arizona. Also, fun fact, he is the brother-in-law of Emily Muller, who is the associate producer of this podcast. We talk about the assumptions that Mike encounters when he tells folks that he's a special education teacher, we talk about what it means to him to really address his students' particular needs, and we talk about some of the ways Mike thinks students are being failed, both in individual classrooms and within the broader education system. I think that Mike's commitment to his students and his thoughtfulness really comes through in this conversation, and I think that you'll agree with me. All right, with that being said, let's dive into my conversation with Mike. Hope you enjoy. Mike Laramie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Of course. Thank you, for, thank you for being here. So what I want you to do first, uh, if you can, is describe your first day of teaching. Um, I want you to go back to the, the first day of school, uh, if you will. And, uh, just think about how much you can remember, like what types of things you can remember. Um, if you have to expand it to like the first week or month or whatever, mm-hmm. feel free to do that. But I'm really curious about what that first day was like for you.
1: Um, yeah, no, it's funny. Cause I, I, in a way I have several first days, like I can remember my first day walking in as a grad student intern in, and in just those feelings. And then, uh, becoming, like, the first time I was a staff member as an education assistant um, versus, like, being a certified teacher. But I think my first day as, like, you know, an official teacher, like, certified walking in, Um, like, with a lot of things, there's that feeling of, now what? Like, I went through all this work, you know, getting these degrees, did all this, you know, practice and demo lessons and evaluations and feedback, and then you're in this position and you have all these kids in front of you and it's just kind of you know that that classic like they're looking at you and you're looking at them and you just have this now what moment and and you know a lot of like feeling maybe a little awkward in this situation and just trying to figure out how okay and you know trying to build that rapport with them but still tapping into you know experiences I've had working with kids and figuring out you know how to break the ice and then Get the ball rolling. And, you know, having talked to, you know, other coworkers who were helpful to a new teacher when I started, you know, gave me a lot of great tips on how to kind of get through that first day to start just getting to know your kids, but definitely walked in with a ton of nerves. Um, Right. And just that, yeah, just kind of that moment of just like, oh my God, like I'm here and this is it. Like it's not, you know, there's really no do overs on the first day. Like these kids are going to, you know, take these first, you know, 20 minutes, first hour, and they're gonna, that's gonna kind of set the tone, perhaps, and then in extending into that first week, um, you know, just not wanting, you know, them to get Uh, the wrong perception of me, like, I don't, I didn't want to be, it's that whole, like, okay, you know, should I be, like, super strict? Should I be really funny? Should I do this? Like,
0: striking that right, that right balance.
1: Yeah. And you're just, your mind's bouncing all over the place. And, you know, it's, you know, kind of the cliche of, like, just be yourself keeps, like, repeating in your head. And, um, but I, I, if, you know, I remember, I mean, I was fortunate at the beginning because I, my first year as a certified teacher, I was at a school. I was at the school that I had worked at as like a teaching aid. And so there was, you know, some carry over there and familiarity. But a year after that, I switched schools and I actually left uh, special ed for a year and taught uh, fifth grade gen ed. And so that was like a, that was probably the biggest switch in terms of like walking in on day one for that year and thinking, now what do I do? Um, and just complete, totally different environment, different set of kids, uh, just different position. Um, and then having switched back, you know, getting back to that more familiar role. But um, yeah, a lot of those first days is definitely just, you know, you see all these kids. And I think the most surprising part is like, you know, you look around the room and, you know, you kind of think to yourself, okay, who's going to be who's going to be that student's going to be the most helpful or the most disruptive or this. And then they just completely surprise you. And, and all those pre, all those, you know, perceptions that you might have just by looking at them kind of melt away over that first week. And then the personality starts coming out. They settle in because, and I think I realized like, just as I'm thinking, I don't know any of them. I mean, they didn't know me. And so we kind of had that, you know, just trying to share some personality of myself to then get it back from them. And, and then eventually things get rolling.
0: Right, right. Well, and they probably look back at you in some ways or look, they look back at the way that you like the expectations they had for you and are like, oh, yeah, I totally thought he was going to be this way or he started out this way. But then he, you know, my expectations of him obviously change and my perception of him is totally different now.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I i mean, I just that one the year I taught fifth grade in particular, um, before the year started, I was told by a lot of the parents that I was their child's first male grade school teacher interesting and so that and especially for the boys they were all super excited because they've never had a a guy teacher and you know at the time you know I was you know in my still my mid-20s and just thinking you know I had sports stuff everywhere and it was like just a totally different I think you know set of expectations and and so that was kind of just oh yeah they've never had a male teacher before and it's just like maybe the parents didn't know what to expect maybe they didn't know what to expect and just kind of that dynamic of you know, not having um, kind of what they've been used to, but I think they quickly figured out that it's still school and it's still right. the same routine, and you know, and they just kind of everything fell into place.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting place that you you tend to inhabit when you're a male educator. I would imagine for you, especially being you know an elementary educator, um, and I definitely encounter that as like as an English teacher, like as someone who teaches teaches in the humanities. Um, and uh, anywhere I tend to go, there tend to be like plenty of other male humanities teachers or male English teachers, but especially teaching freshmen, which I I, I teach a lot of, like, it doesn't really change anything, but it's kind of crazy to think about like, wow, this is this is like the first time they're experiencing a male in this particular role, I guess.
1: Hmm. For sure.
0: Um, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a teacher?
1: Um, it really came about, I would say, in... You know, kind of the summer fall of 2012, um, I graduated from my undergrad in 2010 um, and I was uh, working in the TV and video industry, uh, mostly out of New York City and, um, and then also freelancing in Connecticut. And in my undergrad years, um, I spent my summers um, working for the YMCA at a summer camp. And, um, it was a camp in my hometown and, and I had went, I went there myself as a kid. And so that was my summer job all throughout college. Um, and it was, and when you're there, it just becomes your life. And it was something where it's like, I never really, you know, as back then a teenager, like, yeah, I was working with kids and, and it just kind of came naturally to me, this idea of like, I can go and I can you know, not just play with kids, but once I started, you know, I was working mostly with like seventh, eighth graders and I realized, okay, you know, this kind of has more of a mentor feel and a counseling feel. And, and, you know, kids start sharing, you know, things going on in their life with you. Um, and then I believe back in 2008, our camp had this really great program with a local school district where they let, um, they had basically a lot of their students with autism come to our camp because our camp was not really, uh, geared for special needs. It was pretty much a mainstream camp, um, just a day camp. And, um, but then they wanted, they wanted these students with autism to get some of that mainstream socialization. And the school district said, Hey, if we supply, you know, AIDS and, you know, paraprofessionals to come with these kids and help out your staff, you know, would that work? And of course our camp said, that'd be perfect, you know, cause that way, you know, you have counselors who aren't necessarily trained to work with kids with autism, but if they have the support staff coming, then this could be a really great integration. And so that kind of might've planted a seed, I think, because I, you know, in doing that and getting to know a lot of kids, um, in that program, you know, and also working with the mainstream kids, um, it just became something I realized, you know, I had perhaps, you know, some skills with, and just the idea of not just teaching them, but like being, you know, like I said, kind of that like older mentor. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I graduate college and, you know, I did the film video thing. And then, um, upon moving to Arizona in 2012 from Connecticut, you know, I, you know, it's kind of one of those moments post-college where you kind of say, okay, where, where is my passion? Where can I apply something I really enjoy doing in a more, uh, either productive way or just a more stable way? And, And, you know, thinking back on those experiences in my summers, um, special education just seemed like a really great avenue to explore. And so in January of 2013, I entered um, a special ed master's program at Arizona State University and then completed that in May of 2014.
0: What sort of reactions did you get or I guess do you get when you told people that you wanted to A, go into education and B, wanted to go into special education? And how does that translate into like the types of reactions you currently get about, you know, being a teacher and being a special ed teacher?
1: Um, I think with like my family, you know, when I said, yeah, you know, hey, I'm going to go back to school for, uh, you know, teaching and become a special education teacher. You know, I think like my parents and and other relatives, you know, they kind of had this, you know, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense sort of reaction because I if I remember correctly, when I was much, much younger, I even had an idea of like, oh, I should go into teaching or I should be a teacher. And then, you know, other interests came and then I went into film and video. But um, I think because of maybe they knew how much I loved my camp experience working with kids and just, you know, my general uh, demeanor with kids you know, it was a lot of like, that seems like a really good fit. Um, you know, you probably have a really good way of building rapport with kids. And so that seems like a great idea. And then as far as the special education part of it, um, I think it was, you know, kind of, uh, for me, it was, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I want to do something that's, you know, really impactful in a way. And, you know, I want to work with kids that, you know, need that extra boost. And then, And then kind of the fact that, uh, again, uh, male special educators are kind of uh, not as easy to come uh, come by, you know, out here. And so I remember even in grad school, I had a cohort of about 15 people and there was um, three of us guys. And our professors would simply just say, like, you three guys can pick any school you want because schools with, you know, certain populations, the school I ended up with initially was high school kids with a lot of emotional uh, disabled kids, huge, you know, picture like a high school senior uh, male, you know, he's six, four and he's two fifty and he might be, you know, and, and just kind of the idea that, you know, having, you know, someone like myself in that role just kind of made more sense. And so, yeah. But then, you know, other friends of mine that were in, you know, the film industry, you know, they might've been a little bit of surprised if they hadn't known of what my previous experience was, But, uh, I've had other, I have actually have another friend who kind of same thing. He, he made the switch into education and special education. And so, you know, he was very supportive and, um, but yeah, overall, and nowadays, um, you know, when we meet people and they say, oh, you're a teacher, what do you teach? And I say special ed, you know, it's a lot of people say, oh, what's that like? Or, you know, what types of kids? And they kind of want to know more because it's not just your typical, uh, you know, I teach this grade, this subject, it's you know, it's such a wide range of either sure. ages and topics and needs. And, and so they get curious about kind of what really in it all entails.
0: Yeah. How, how, how do you feel about like that point of that uh, line of inquiry? I guess does like, is there a part of you that kind of gets not tired of it, but just, I don't know. I, I, I encounter that and I don't, I don't teach special ed. Um, I teach plenty of kids with learning differences, but, but not specifically special ed, but I can sometimes And I was talking with one of my friends about this. Sometimes it can get kind of annoying when, you know, you say you're a teacher and everyone's like, oh, like, God bless you. Like, that must be so hard. (laughs) Or like, I could never do that because kids are just the worst. And sometimes it's like, okay, like, I get that, but it's kind of annoying.
1: I know exactly. Because if I had, like, especially when I'm talking to someone not in education, as soon as I mention that I'm a special education teacher, the first thing I am told is, wow, you must have so much patience. Right. And my response is, yeah, I probably have the same amount as you. Like, you know, it's being a special education yeah. teacher doesn't, uh, you know, it's kind of this this perception of like, I must be the most patient person in the world because I think some people hear special education and they think behavior problems. And so it goes right. into right. like, wow, you must be so patient to work with all those behavior problems. And I say, well, there's plenty of behavior problems with uh, a, a non-disabled student there's plenty of special ed yeah. students I work with that are model behavior wise, like they're, you know, perfect and they yeah. don't cause the problems in that way. And and then I say and now I tell them it's like, you know, like I just like any other human get, you know, you know, frustrated if I'm, you know, doing a lot of reteaching or if, you know, it's just or if there is behavior issues, you know, it's just this that I think that stigma of like, you know, you have to be this like unbelievably patient person to teach special ed. So that comes up a
0: lot. Yeah, well, that probably taps into or it it makes it very clear just how many how like how many assumptions people have about what it means to be, you know, to be disabled or to have a learning difference or anything like that. And that's kind of part of the problem, right? Like the fact that we just make these assumptions of what it means, like what this disability looks like when it can look different for Mm -hmm. different people, depending on the situation, so it, it probably can get pretty frustrating given like your line of work and given like how well you know these yeah. kids and how you see them as like individuals when other people. And at the end of the day, people tend to be like this because they're not exposed to, you know, we live in very we live mm-hmm. in bubbles. Right. Um, but it can still be frustrating, I'm sure. Yeah. On your no, hand. I
1: mean, especially like in the fact that there's just so many different populations at my first school um yeah it was a more it was a school more geared for behavior issues but we also had kids that just had learning disabilities and the kids i work with now you know same thing there's a mix and so it's that you know explaining you know learning disabled kids like you know their disability is invisible like you can't just see it you know and and you know and and even talking to them like i've you know i'm sure you come across kids that have uh you know some learning disability but you have a conversation with them about anything and you would never know. And so I think there's still, I mean, it's obviously gotten a lot better, but, you know, especially with older folks, there's a lot of that, you know, what special ed meant when they were in school. And it was like, you know, the classic, you know, there's a room where all the special ed kids went and they never came out of that room. Right. And so there was still those effects of that, like institutionalization where, you know, it was, you know, pre, you know, where the law got now where, you know, we obviously have more inclusion. But so I think, you know, some right. people, you know, in that kind of have still those memories from where they were in school. And so they special education means a very specific thing to them. And it's, oh, it's the behavior kids right. or it's the kids with cognitive disabilities or um, which obviously, you know, some special educators still obviously work with. But it's just that idea that special education has grown into meaning so much more than what that narrow perception of it was, you know, way back when. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. What were you like as a, as a student? Um,
1: I was um, pretty much your typical middle of the road student. Um, And, and, you know, I was taught um, pretty much, I think back even in my You know, cam counselor days and in my master's program, you know, it's like you have your, your top, your like top, top students, the ones that, you know, they're perfect behavior wise and they excel at everything. And so they get a lot of your attention and praise, you know, because they're so good at it. And then you have your behavior problems or your, you know, lower ability students and they get a lot of negative attention or redirection and support. And so the ones in the middle, you know, just kind of like, just go about their day, you know, they're not really getting much attention from the teacher because we're not on the higher end of everything, but we're also yeah. not on the lower end. And I I really think I was that dead center, you know, you know, I was, I had, you know, pretty much good grades. I think like most teenagers come high school, you know, you get a little complacent and lazy with certain things here and there. Right. And Your priorities start to shift. Yeah, I played sports forever, you know, year round, you know, I was always doing something with sports or, um, you know, hanging out with friends and things like that. But generally, you know, my parents instilled a pretty good work ethic in terms of like, you come home, you get your homework started. And I had an older sister who was a very, uh, you know, really good student. So, you know, the expectations were high, you know, I was expected to get A's and B's and Um, and not, and, you know, so I think there was a couple of times in high school where like my grades slipped and it was, you know, very much like, you know, what weren't you doing? And so, but generally like in grade school, you know, I was still one of those kids that was, you know, terrified of getting in trouble and, and wanted to (laughs) please the teacher, wanted to, and generally wanted to do well. Um, and then, but yeah, I mean, I had a great group of friends and most of us were involved in various things, but. Um, Yeah, for the most part, I really just I looked at my if I look back, especially in high school, it's just like middle of the road, like, you know, wasn't in that like upper quarter, but I definitely wasn't in the lower quarter. And it was just like dead center, basically.
0: Would you say that even in being like a more middle of the road type of student, would you say that you valued education or valued your educational opportunities?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the expectation, I think, in my own desire was to go to college, you know, and, you know, in order that was kind of taught to me both by teachers and by my parents that, you know, you need to do well because you need to get into college and you need to get into college if you want to have a job that, you know, pays you a good salary and have a good long career. And so I definitely feel like I definitely cared about doing well. Like I didn't want you know, to go to school and just kind of go through the motions and then go home afterwards. Um, I mean, that being said, there was definitely days where, you know, like most teenagers, like you come home and the last thing I wanted to do was a pile of homework, or you know, right. I was more worried about, you know, instant messaging became a thing back then, and you know, uh, it was, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. and so yeah, I mean, it was that was kind of where I spent a lot of time. I'm sure in my teenage years was just chatting with friends and you know, and just kind of like typical stuff, you know, letting this go by or that go by in terms of, you know, not getting assignments done. But overall, you know, I feel like I cared. I I wanted to do well. I wanted getting into like a good college was important. Um, not wanting to disappoint anybody was definitely in the back of my mind.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So I want you to think about how we uh, how we fail our students. Um, by that, I mean, like how we as educators like as individual educators can feel our students and when when that happens and what that looks like but also just more broadly sort of about like the system as a whole and I'd imagine you have a lot to say about the system as a whole because I know currently you're very involved with a lot of what's going on in Arizona with public school teachers and a lot of the protests and the strikes and the walkouts and stuff like that. So I'd I'd love to hear about your, just your experience with that and your, and your perception of all that, but I'm I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'd love to hear what your initial, initial response to that question is.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as far as like what's going on in Arizona um, and how the system is failing, I mean, that obviously is, you know, the red for ed movement out here is coming down to funding. And, you know, when you look at the numbers and you look at what like, you know, the national averages, you know, Arizona just doesn't really come close Um, and it's not just teacher pay. I mean, obviously when you look online, you know, you see a lot about, you know, that the Red Fred movement is all about raising teacher salaries. And that is a part of it because, you know, when you look at the numbers, there's, there's about 2000 vacancies in Arizona, there's a teaching shortage and it's in part because we can't keep people in the profession now. I mean, yeah, that could be a mixture of, you know, just teacher burnout or, but it's also just a competitive pay issue. You know, teachers go to California, they go anywhere that they can get a better paying teaching job, or they just leave the field in general. Yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of former coworkers who do other things now because it's a better paying job. And so teacher pay has, you know, a piece of the puzzle, but it's really just classroom funding. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, errors like at my school now, we receive, you know, it's a little over $24,000 less per classroom today than what we did in 2008. That's insane. Um, and, and and I mean, yeah, obviously in 2008, you know, there was the start of the recession and that played a role. But um, when you look at the numbers, again, the Arizona, you know, state government has been cutting about over $2 billion in like just maintenance and operations funding since 2009 Um, there, you know, it's, so there's this money that was allotted for schools 10 years ago and it's just been slowly cut and cut and cut. And so in that big picture thing, that's one way the system, especially in Arizona is failing is the money situation. Um, It's not about just salaries. It's not about, you know, teachers want to make more money. We want, teachers to be able to stay in the profession, you know, coming from the Northeast, you know, I, if I walked into my high school today, I would imagine I would run into several teachers that I had even, you know, 15, you know, going on 16, 17 years ago. And, and they had been there for the 20 years before I even showed up. And so he'd say, okay, well, why are you still here 30, 40 years later? And it's just because, you know, they can do that when they have, you know, a more competitive pay. They're not in a position to leave the field of, of education. And so it's just really coming down to per student funding, you know, not for facilities, for curriculum and for support staff. The whole system has been just grossly underfunded for the last 10 to 15 years in Arizona. Um and, you know, obviously, you know, it gets and it gets a little more political in terms of like how the state is, you know, giving all these tax exemptions and tax credits to corporations, you know, more than what they collect in the general fund. And right. um, and so there's that issue. And that's part of what the Red Fred movement is about, is the fact that we can't keep teachers in the state. We can't fund our schools, you know, with the way they w- used to be funded 10 years ago. Um and if they actually raise teacher pay by the twenty percent that the red Fred movement called for, it would still fall below the national average. Right. So they hear people hear twenty percent, they say, "Oh well, my god, that's a huge raise." And yeah. then we say, "Well, okay, that'll get us closer to what right. the median is." Yeah, but it doesn't cover it at all. But it's still not quite what the average is, and and so it's you know just and the aim, there's all sorts of statistics. I mean, you can look at you know if like right now teacher pay here is about, you know, 47th, 48th in the country for like elementary and secondary teachers. And we have one of the highest incarceration rates. And then that flips when you go to other states that have the highest education funding, they have one of the right. lowest incarceration rates. And so that school to prison pipeline is a real thing. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I mean, so that's really kind of the funding issue. But as far as, you know, kind of more you know, us in the classroom and just kind of teaching the profession. Um, my team and I, last year, we read a really interesting book um, that you might have heard of. It's called Most Likely to Succeed. I actually um, haven't heard of it. It's a yeah, Most Likely to Succeed is a, is a book. And it, I believe it also um, became a documentary. And it just has a lot to do with taking a step back and looking at the public education system in America and what it was founded on. And it was founded on and really designed around, um, you know, the industrial revolution and industrializing education. We needed to crank out, you know, educated people to then go get jobs that required, you know, skills, but nothing in terms of creativity and innovation. It was just, you know, literally schools themselves became factories. Right. For just cranking out students that had, you know, your basic skills. And that system in theory has never really changed. I mean, you think about it, it's like as simple as it sounds, it's like you think about you go walk into a high school and they all have bells that go off roughly every hour. That's not a teaching tool. That's an organizational tool. Right. And it's just to keep the system moving. Um, And then and, you know, and then you get into grades And I can't even tell you like how, you know, I have students that are very, very focused on what their grade is in the class, but, and then you get into the conversation, especially with my special education students, you know, their letter grade, you know, is obviously different than what, you know, their growth is or what their mastery is. And so I, I honestly think, you know, with, you know, some of the things that they talk about in that book is you know, okay, what is the real goal that we're trying to get here? You know, are we just trying to get kids to, you know, turn in an assignment and hand them a diploma so they can get on with a job? Or are we trying to find, you know, more engaging ways to get them some real life experiences, um, and I, and it's like, it's super easy to say all this stuff and it's, it's hard to put into practice. And I think yeah. the system is perhaps failing in that way is like, you know, it's all, it's super exciting to talk about, yeah, let's be innovative, let's be creative. And then it comes down to, okay, how do we do that?
0: Yeah. And every
1: school is different. So there's really no like simple answer as to like, that would apply to every school in part because of resources. I mean, yeah. when you get to rural schools or inner city schools or you know any school really it's just a matter of okay well what do you have to work with Um and so I think that in a way is a big part of the issue is we're still stuck in this industrialized education system Um and then even like I think of myself personally and you know, I like every teacher you know you have those days where you're just you know burnt out in terms of gosh, I had to manage so much behavior this week. I couldn't really even teach what I wanted to. Um, And, you know, and like, and so for me, I think, okay, does that mean I need to work on my classroom management? Like, am I?
0: Am I the problem? Yeah. Is
1: it like, maybe it's not them. Like, am I doing what I need to do on that end in order to keep the instruction moving? Um, Am I differentiating enough? Like, am I assuming that certain kids can do what I'm giving them? Or do I need to break this down even more feeling pulled between, you know, when I'm in a room that has so such high needs academically, you know, am I pulling myself too thin in terms of like, can I give each one of these kids the time and attention they need? Or am I so worried about, you know, covering every subject or every topic in this math curriculum that I'm moving too quick? And I, should I get back to a more like, you know, no, we're going to stick on this until it's mastered. And I think there's that push and pull because it's like, okay, obviously these kids have goals on their IEP that need to be met, but I also need to like get them through Mm. fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And I don't want them to go to the next grade even less prepared. And so it's kind of just that, that internal conflict I feel as far as, you know, that, okay, I'm expected to boost these scores, um, you know, for kids that have learning disabilities, but, and so I want to master the things that they haven't mastered fundamentally, but I also want to give them the skills that they need for their grade level. And it's such a back and forth. And obviously every student's a little different, but, um, and then, so I myself fall into that industrialized trap of just trying to crank right. things out, trying to crank out these standards. So it's like, okay, like let's check our boxes and move on. Yeah. But, you know, how can I find, you know, ways to be a little bit more creative and, and innovative in how I do this so these kids can be feel more prepared for you know for high school or for life after high school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's about so many of my conversations that I've been having with educators have tapped into this idea of of balance, right? Of balancing you know, your priorities, the focus, like thinking about, you know, the fact that we do have material we need to cover, but we also have skills that we want to teach, or we, we want to also focus on teaching like the whole child and focusing on the character aspect and focusing on cultivating a love of learning for the sake of learning. And it's it's hard to do all of that. And it is, it's really easy to get into that yeah, that mindset of like, okay, this is what we have to do. We have all these things we need to accomplish. We have all the, we have all these tasks that we need to accomplish, mm-hmm. and you really lose sight of it. And I'm yeah. I'm struck by I'm struck by what you said about what it means to innovate and the fact that in a lot of ways we we want to innovate and we want to kind of blow up the system or change the system, but there are like all these asterisks, you know, like oh, well, except for this, except for this, we don't want to tap into this. I think about the grade aspect. Like so many teachers will say, yeah, I'm a I'm a liberal educator. Like, I want to constantly be moving forward and changing with the times. But the second you start talking about grades, that's a thing that people will be like, no, but how, how would we assess the children? How will how they know will how, know they're, how doing? they're doing? Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on. Like, that's like the, the arguably one of the biggest things that is mm-hmm. holding kids back from enjoying, from loving learning and, and learning for the sake of learning.
1: Yeah, I have I work with um on my special ed director at my school. You know, she's been in the in the field for going over 30 years and even you know, so but she's even saying like we need to do away with grades, especially in the elementary and middle school levels where it's not it's not important what their letter grade is. What's important is are they mastering what they need to know? Yeah. And Are we shoving them through a list of stuff without making sure that's the case? Like, and I I mean, I would love it if I could just hand all of my sixth, seventh, eighth graders, you know, this list at the beginning, but not be so worried about, okay, we got to check all these boxes, guys, but having the students, you know, not just be worried about what's my, my, my grade percentage or what, you know, is it an A or a B or a C, but have them look at the actual topics and the actual standards themselves and kind of, you know, get the students involved in this is what we're going to try to cover right now. And, you know, kind of getting them involved in the process of, you know, are you growing? Are you making adequate growth? Are you, you know, are we mastering these skills? Not just, did you get a B on your project? Right. And trying to, bring the student, especially those secondary students into, you know, that whole process and, and getting even the students away from grades. And like you said, I completely agree that, you know, going up the chain, you know, you have older teachers, administrators, parents, you know, it's that system. And, and some of these aspects have been so ingrained in, you know, the perception of well, how do you measure what the student's doing um, and so it's really going to just, I think it's going to come down to kind of a, you know, societal change in terms of how we view, you know, success in education and, in, you know, what is important for the student to focus on if it's not going to be a letter grade.
0: Right. Right. Going back to what you said way at the beginning of the conversation about being like one of the only or one of the first male teachers that a lot of these students have had. I'm curious about how that awareness manifests itself in what you do as as an educator. I know I think about gender a lot. just I mean, I teach English, so it, it tends to come up quite a bit in a lot of the texts that we teach. But just in a lot of the conversations I have with with my students, specifically my male students about like what, you know, what masculinity looks like, like what manhood looks like and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I don't know to what extent it, it, it comes up in, in in what you do. But I'm, I'm curious, like, if it changes anything about how you regard your job, or if there are other considerations that you that you think about?
1: Um, I would say it, it, it doesn't come up quite a bit, I guess, in my day to day, like, I've never, I can't really think of a particular time where, you know, a situation arose in and I say to myself, oh, you know, okay, these, you know, these boys are, you know, or these teenagers are tapping into something that has to do with, uh, you know, growing into adolescence or, you know, manhood, things like that. I think there's definitely instances where, you know, maybe my approach on handling, say, like an emotional student or a sensitive student, you know, is different. And and I'm not saying it's going to be right all the time. I mean, I have one student that I think, you know, I can kind of snap him out of, you know, some of his, uh, some of the breakdowns he has, or he can recover a lot faster. And, you know, other teachers say like, you know, how did, like, how did you do that? How did you, like, he's back and working. And it's just, I don't know if, and, and I think, you know, maybe it is taking, you know, the more, I guess, stern approach, but not to say that, you know, his female teachers couldn't also take a stern approach. It is It is interesting to think about, you know, how is my role as a male teacher going to, you know, affect the students day to day? And, you know, and maybe there and I think there's definitely times where students, you know, have issues and they might not want to talk to me. They might want to go find, you know, a more like, you know, some some teacher that they see, you know, as a more like maternal figure in terms of, uh, you know, getting through some issue that they're dealing with. And and so, yeah, I don't know because um, it's it's interesting to think about. But, yeah, I I, I can't say there's been – I mean, maybe it's the age group I've worked with. I, I, I used to work with high schoolers, but they were, like I say, a little more, um, you know, higher needs. It was a more restrictive environment. So that really didn't come up. I think actually at that school there was a lot more male teachers. Um, but, you know, where I am now, you know, having worked with this – through eighth grade. Um, yeah, it's not, I haven't really had any instances that have popped up where it's, you know, Hey, let's talk about, you know, what it is to be a man or, you know, the differences between, I mean, I think that in like one-on-one conversations or, you know, there's times where like if certain students that I have that maybe I coached for baseball or have had in previous classes, um, you know, things come up where maybe I see them kind of going down a path of, you know, you know, hey, you're, you're not, you know, maybe you need to work on, you know, your respect of, you know, the girls in your class. Or maybe you need to right. not talk to your female teacher, you know. And it's, you know, noticing that, like, there's teenage boys who get a little bit more, they kind of feel like they can get away with things with some of their female teachers. Yeah. And they wouldn't do that with, like, me or, you know, we, one of our teachers, male teachers, um, has, you know he's, you know, maybe more intimidating and they don't cross those lines. Right. And so I think a lot of it is, especially with our like eighth grade and high school boys is trying to be that coach of like, okay, like just because you have some male teachers and some female teachers doesn't mean you treat them differently. And already trying to break apart those gender stereotypes for them and saying like, okay, like don't be disrespectful to your female English teacher just because you think you know they're not gonna hold you accountable, yeah. And and just trying to make sure that they're not gonna you know that they're not gonna perpetuate you yeah. know that culture.
0: Yeah, and teaching them to be mindful of the fact that they might be treating them this way, you know, because they are you know a female a uh, female teacher when they they don't want to admit that you mm-hmm. know because it's hard. I I have a lot of conversations with my students about that, and it's really hard to get them to think that oh maybe you do talk to this teacher this way or you don't take them as seriously because this teacher is a woman and then immediately it's like oh no it's not about that it's because they're just you know any number of other things but it's hard to get them to recognize that oh maybe you don't have total total control over how you act or your subconscious Mm -hmm. um like the assumptions you make about about your teachers um yeah i i think about that a lot and i don't i don't know how best to do it because in so many ways i wasn't like a this is going to sound really like like I'm really special. I just wasn't like a typical boy in a lot of ways. I, I was when I was in high school in, in some ways, but in a lot of ways, I just was never hyper masculine. And that was never really something that I considered a lot. Um, so in a lot of ways, I can't fully connect to sort of where they are. And I find that my level of patience for a lot of that is, is pretty low, maybe lower than it should be. So mm-hmm. it's hard to strike that balance of, of being able to connect with them and, and use your status as a male teacher for, for mm-hmm. good.
1: And and I and that's something that just kinda of popped in my mind is, you know, these teenagers in general and then even the boys are, you know, they're growing up in a world of social media and devices that perhaps is painting a different perception of society for them. I mean, hopefully they're, you know, paying attention to obviously, you know, some of the changes going on and and understanding, you know, like you say, like respecting everyone regardless of gender and and I think sometimes these boys, you know, they see and they, they see things online maybe and they start idolizing other male figures who yeah. aren't the best role models in terms of, like, you know, respecting women and things like that and, and still being a coach for them is important. But um, since I don't teach high school at the moment, I don't come across that quite as much.
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense. Uh, so as we kind of move into the end here, I'm curious if there is a particular piece of – Advice that you've received or, or something that you repeatedly tell yourself or remind yourself of when it comes to teaching or some sort of favorite quote or, or saying or something like that, that you kind of carry with you? Um,
1: hmm. I've had the great benefit of working with a really couple good uh, mentors. Uh, one at my previous school, um, you know, he had been there and is there if going on, you know, 30 plus years. And then, like I mentioned, my current uh, special ed coordinator, you know, 30 plus years in the field. And, you know, she has really taught me a lot about focusing on the individual student. And she's, you know, when I always ask questions about, OK, you know, you know, especially when it comes to like building these kids IEPs. And, you know, I ask questions about, OK, well, should I is that too much? Like, am I putting in? too much service time, or am I getting a little too ambitious with their goals? And she always reminds me like, you know, don't worry about all these external factors. It comes down to what the students need. And that's it at the end of the day is what yeah. do they need? And and don't worry about the scheduling for the future. And don't worry about because it's not, you know, if we get it, if that's our focus, then we're doing it completely wrong. Like if we're so worried about you know, you know, giving them too much here, too much there, even when it's coming down to like, you know, amounts of service minutes, then we've lost the focus because it it always is gonna come back to what do they need this particular student? Um, and so that's definitely stuck with me a lot. Um, and I think also just in trying to, you know, I think use, you know, being one of the younger teachers, you know, in both my last school and this school is, um, you know, trying to incorporate more of the technology tools, trying to get the kids, trying to figure out what is engaging for them today is something that I think has stuck with me as well. Trying not to fall into the patterns of what we might have experienced in school and and even before that. But it's, yeah, it it's, really
0: is radically different. It's so easy to yeah. recite of that.
1: Yeah. And it's like, and I I mean, and I I get into the dilemma of like, okay, like I'm, I love, you know, educational technology. I love ed tech. I read about it all the time. I have raised money to get myself a ton of like Chromebooks and I use them daily. And we do a lot of, you know, web-based, you know, applications and we use technology a lot, like a lot every day. And so, and I worry, I'm like, okay, well, but am I getting them you know with technology dependence but then i'm you know but it's it's like okay well what do they need they need tools for writing and this is a tool for writing and so it's it's really coming back to what do they need you know they need to learn how to express themselves in the written form and if technology is going to get them there then yeah i'm going to take advantage of it
0: yeah well it sounds like with with both of those pieces of advice or both of those considerations like you're really thinking about meeting them where they are right like acknowledging their individual needs and making sure that you're keeping that at the center of what you do and then also like trying to adapt to what they currently need like as learners in 2018 or whatever whatever year um that's like something that, that strikes me about both of those pieces of advice but it's it really comes from that same sort of priority of just keeping mm-hmm. the kids and their needs at at the center and trying to to do well well by the kids
1: yeah um Yeah. The only other thing that really pops into mind is just, it really comes down to building relationships. Um, my wife is also a teacher and we teach at the same school and, and she is an an expert at, you know, building relationships and, you know, you know, there's kids that, you know, might not be the favorite student of many teachers and she's always just, oh, I have a great relationship with them. Like maybe I can, you know, you know, talk to them and figure out what's going on. And, and so, you know, I, I try to, you know, follow her footsteps in that realm about, you know, build taking the time to build a relationship with as, as much as possible. And I know, especially at the secondary level, you know, when you have literally hundreds of students all day and it's hard to, but, you know, and it's hard to sometimes get time with all of them, but still taking the time to build that relationship can pay off in the end um, as far as getting them, keeping them engaged and getting them to, really be motivated for you. And so it's, I would say, those are the two biggest things is, is, you know, just taking the time to get to know the student and build that relationship up. It's going to help in the long run, even if it comes down to like, you know, maybe they make a mistake and you know, that relationship is going to help you guide them through that character development. Um, and then also not being so worried about, you know, giving kids, you know, Anything other than what they need, you know, don't pull back if what they need is more.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Relationships definitely serve as the foundation of what we do at the end of the day. So, as we wrap up, I have one last thing. Um, I have a challenge for you if you are at all interested in a challenge. All right. So, what I'd like you to do, if you can, is capture your essence as an educator, like essentially. Pitch yourself as an educator, in a sense, to the best of your abilities in 30 seconds. So just okay. whatever comes to mind. Um, this will not be used on future interviews or anything <laughs> like that. Um, I will throw 30 seconds on the clock. And uh, are you uh, are you ready? Do you have any questions?
1: No. Okay. So pitching myself as an educator.
0: Yeah. Like capturing okay. your essence. Like what, what it, it, it means to have Mike Laramie as an educator. Okay. All right. Awesome. I'm going to start in three, two, one. Three, Two, one, go.
1: So based on uh, feedback that I've received, my essence as an educator is I am very laid back and fun. However, um, I still expect my expectations to be followed and I'm definitely a huge proponent of student accountability.
0: Wow, and you even have five seconds to spare. Look at that. Well, then you shouldn't have any uh, issues with this next portion. I'm going to ask you to do the exact same thing, but this time in 10 seconds. Okay? Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Three, two, one,
1: go. I expect my students to take full accountability for their learning and do it to the best of their ability perfect
0: now uh i'd like you to capture your essence as a teacher or pitch yourself as a teacher or something like that uh using one single word oh my gosh um (laughs) if we're easy it wouldn't be fun
1: that's true one single word of myself as an educator That's a lot harder than it sounds. Um, <laughs> I've, I think I used accountability a few to too many times. Um, I think it would be progress.
0: Progress. That's great. Yeah. That definitely seems to catch capture it based on a, our conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for talking with me, Mike. Um, it's been really awesome. Just listening to you talk about uh, talk about what you do. And it's it's very clear that you're, your students are lucky to have you. I'm not going to say anything about how patient uh, you seem because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you've gotten enough of that. But uh, it seems like you're doing some really, uh, really incredible work.
1: All right. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you once again to Mike. Just a quick update on something we touched on during our conversation. Not long after Mike and I talked, the Red forehead movement actually scored a pretty major victory, with the governor signing a bill that gives teachers a wage increase over the course of a couple years. While there's still definitely work to be done, I was really happy to hear about that development. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay, our associate producer is Emily Mulder, our cover art is by Katie Cooper, and our theme music is by Really From. As ever, if you like what you heard, Please rate us and leave us a review and please check us out on Facebook and maybe tell a friend about the podcast. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.